Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Progress in the Treatment of Myelofibrosis. And today's program is an important one. I know for all of you on the call, you've waited to, for us to um, offer this program again, and I know it's important to each of you. Today's program is supported by Novartis Oncology and the Dianapoli Fund, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program and for their support of many of our programs um, at Cancer Care. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today. There's over 147 participants on the call today who come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas and frontier communities. And we also have international participants today from Canada, France, Iraq, Taiwan, and United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I have a few questions I'd like to ask all of you. So I'm going to um, ask, and for those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to answer these questions. Um, so the first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the role of staging, diagnosing, and progression in myelofibrosis in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the current standard of care and new and emerging treatment approaches for myelofibrosis. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand common signs and symptoms of myelofibrosis, how to reduce complications of myelofibrosis, and what symptoms should prompt a call to my healthcare team. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now we just have two questions left. Next question, I understand how to manage the symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort, pain, and quality of life concerns of myelofibrosis. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then... This will be the last question. I understand the significance of clinical trials for myelofibrosis. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I actually want to thank you all for um, actually participating in these questions. It will help us to better uh, develop programs going forward to have a sense of what you know and what you need to know about these programs. So thank you so about these topics. Thank you so much. And now it's my pleasure to move on and introduce our first speaker. 
And our first speaker is Dr. Aaron Gerdes. Dr. Gerdes is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Deputy Director for Clinical Research, Cleveland Clinic Tostic Cancer Institute, Medical Director, Case Comprehensive Cancer Center, Clinical Research Office. And Dr. Gerdes will be addressing overview and, and updates on myelofibrosis in the context of COVID-19, staging and diagnosing, understanding common signs and symptoms, current standard of care, clinical trial updates on myelofibrosis, how research contributes to your treatment options, and talking with your, health, with your doctor about what symptoms should prompt you or your, or your caregiver to call the office. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gertz. Thanks, uh, Dr. Mesner. Um, again, uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking with all of you today. It's a wonderful crowd, almost 150 people from all over the globe. It's very exciting. Um, uh, you know, I think things in myelofibrosis now are really exciting as well. Um, we are making incredible strides in improving the lives of patients. You know, we we currently here in the United States have two JAK inhibitors that are FDA uh, approved for the treatment of myelofibrosis with many new therapies on the horizon, and, and it's certainly an exciting time to be in the field. Obviously, we're in the midst of a pandemic and a global pandemic, which has changed a lot of things in all of our lives. And, uh, you know, it's really been important in, in the realm of myelofibrosis as well. And really, you know, this first kind of item here, the, the update, overview and updates on myelofibrosis in the context of COVID-19, I think there's really a couple of facets that, that come to mind. You know, one is kind of the more structural uh, types of things, the way we take care of patients. You know, uh, um, at least at my own institution I've experienced, and I think many of my colleagues have, of an uptake in, in virtual care of patients where, you know, to minimize contacts and going out, you know, we've done more and more virtual visits, which I think will go away with time for, for local patients, but has opened up opportunities for second opinions and easy second and third opinions for patients from around the globe that can simply just kind of call in or connect with Zoom to get additional opinions and, and connect with the expertise that are available out there um, without having the, the burden of, you know, hopping in an airplane or driving in a car to go get those second opinions. So I think that's an enduring uh, part of the pandemic I think we will see that will, will certainly benefit patients with myelofibrosis. I think more specifically with myelofibrosis, um, you know, one of the clear things that kind of came out of this was the association with um, uh, of how patients with myelofibrosis did when they get got the COVID-19 infection. And I think it highlights a, a really important point that although, you know, patients with myelofibrosis may have normal neutrophil counts, you know, not be neutropenic or have suppressed white counts, I mean, it is a sy systemic disease that can increase complication rates when other things happen, like a viral infection. Um, there was an article published back in January um, by the Italian group that um, and, and they have a wonderful database for their MPN patients where they collect large amounts of nearly population-based data. And look out, they looked at the outcomes of patients with myelofibrosis who got the COVID-19 infection there in Italy and compared them against you know, uh, uh, each other and how they did and even with an eye towards the normal population who did not have myelofibrosis. And some striking numbers came out of that analysis. You know, uh, uh, after the diagnosis of COVID-19 infections, uh, roughly... 75% uh, of patients uh, were hospitalized. So, you know, two, every three of four patients that got diagnosed with COVID-19 ended up in the hospital. Um, and roughly 60% required respiratory support. Um, and 11% uh, required ICU management, which is a significant number of patients. And the mortality associated with going to the ICU 
with a COVID-19 infection and having myelofibrosis was 50%. So um, that, that's a pretty big number. So I think, you know, in the in the con, you know, the, the pandemic is one thing, but just thinking about our patients and patients with myelofibrosis, that you know, we may not look at their blood counts and say, boy, you're really immunocompromised, or you may not be on chemotherapy and think you're really immunocompromised. But for some patients, um, in the setting of an infection, it can be a very severe thing. And so I think that's something that will be enduring. And, and I think as time goes along, too, we'll unpackage more of this. How much is specific to this virus? How much is applicable to all infections? And are there ways that we can and strategies that we can employ in order to reduce these types of complications. So I think those are really kind of the two take-home points with, with, with an eye to the pandemic in the care of patients with myelofibrosis. And some other kind of topics we wanted to cover today were some basics about myelofibrosis, so like staging and diagnosis are the first thing. So whenever I see a patient in clinic and we have a consultation, I say really medicine is boiled simply boiled down to three things. What is it? How bad is it? And what are we going to do about it? And each of those questions, uh, the answer depends on the prior, the answer of the prior question. So first of all, what is it? How do we make the diagnosis of myelofibrosis? Well, certainly we can suspect it based on clinical factors, you know, anemia and abnormal blood counts, um, certain symptoms like night sweats and splenomegaly on exam, uh, as well. But the critical kind of piece is the bone marrow biopsy and looking into the bone marrow for that scar tissue. Secondly, we combine that with genomic information, particularly looking for uh, mutations in the JAK-STAT pathway that can really kind of key us into that diagnosis, mutations in genes called JAK2, calreticulin, and MPL. And uh, we take all that information together to make the diagnosis. And there are criteria that exist to diagnose prefibrotic myelofibrosis as well as myelofibrosis. And the staging is kind of different. So, you know, when we talk about staging for other cancers, like breast cancer or prostate cancer, we talk about where the disease has traveled to in the body. You know, has it gone from, say, the breast to the lymph nodes to the liver? And those are different stages. And we're all kind of intuitively know what stage one, two, three, four cancer means. But if we use that type of staging system for blood cancer like myelofibrosis, it doesn't make sense because your blood is everywhere, so everyone would be the same stage. So instead, we use these prognostic models where we take a list of clinical factors that are readily available at the time of diagnosis, and we come up with a nomogram where we add up all the points, and that is associated with an, uh, a, an estimated survival or an average survival. And that can help us parse out patient's disease into less aggressive disease and more aggressive disease. That's really important because the more aggressive the disease is, the more aggressive we need to be with it. If someone has a predicted average survival of, you know, 10, 15 years, bone marrow transplant, which is a very aggressive therapy, does not make a lot of sense because it'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. The complication rates are so high that would actually do the patient harm. But if a av predicted average survival for an individual is, say, two or three years, then actually something as aggressive as bone marrow transplant would be helpful where we do go for that cure, knowing that the disease can accelerate very quickly in those instances, and thus we apply a, a very aggressive, potentially curative treatment uh, in those cases. And of course, there's everything in between. And so we take all that information all together. Um, and we also, and so we apply that as a standard of care. Um, so the high-risk patients, again, who are, or we think are potentially eligible for transplant, are young and fit and have, and have what we perceive to be aggressive disease, we think about bone marrow transplant because it is the one thing that we have today that can potentially cure this disease. 
In patients who have higher risk disease that are not bone marrow transplant candidates, or you know, patients who may have lower risk disease but are symptomatic from their myelofibrosis, we may consider using JAK inhibitor therapy. Uh, so, and, and again, the two drugs that are available here in the United States commercially are fedratinib and ruxolitinib. And um, really, both those drugs have been shown to do two things consistently, shrink people's spleens and improve people's symptoms burdens. And that's really important um, because that can translate into improvements not only in quality of life, but even in quantity of life by doing those two things. Um, that's been borne out in uh, some of the studies that Surge has led looking at the long-term outcomes of patients treated with ruxolitinib, I think is a really important point. To the best of our knowledge, neither of these drugs root out disease. It doesn't go in and kill myelofibrosis cells, but certainly people can live better and can live longer with these medications. And then on the flip side, someone with a very low-risk myelofibrosis who's asymptomatic, um, we may stick with careful observation because to, to date, there's no data that intervening with any of these medications can make anyone live better or any longer. And so it really kind of depends on a patient's disease risk and whether or not they have symptoms when applying standard care treatments. So, of course, this all has to do with the standard of care treatments, and we're looking towards the future. And, um, and, and, and the future is really coming in ways of clinical trials. And many of the efforts that we have look from bench to bedside and back, but there are a lot of things that are getting pretty close to commercialization, uh, uh, we hope. Uh, there are certainly new JAK inhibitors on the way. Uh, there's one called Pacritinib which is specifically for patients with low platelet counts and low blood counts in general that can deliver JAK inhibitor therapy, improving spleens and improving symptom burns without totally trashing the counts. Uh, and there's another drug called momolotinib, which can also improve anemia while delivering JAK, while inhibiting JAK stat pathway. Um, and so if it's kind of like a two-for-one kind of drug, which is really important. Um, so these drugs are, are pretty close on the way for myelofibrosis. Near those is, a, is another drug called a BET, another class of drugs called BET inhibitors. And these, in combination with JAK inhibitors, seem to have much higher response rates. And so those are entering phase three trials right now, um, which is a very exciting uh, concept that we might get a new class of medications in order to treat patients and improve the lives of, of patients with myelofibrosis. Uh, and so those are clinical trials that are ongoing and, and look to improve the quality of life and longevity of patients going forward. And then the last kind of topic here is uh, talking with your doctor about what symptoms should prompt you to call, uh, prompt you or your caregiver to call the office. And honestly, I think it's big changes, right? So um, if you were not having night sweats before, and they are now, and there's no good alternative explanation, I think that's worth calling. Um, if you're experiencing bruising or bleeding, um, if you've noticed weight loss, or you're not eating as much as you used to, um, all these things are, 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 can be significant symptoms of your disease changing and I think are worth a discussion with your doctor. Uh, and, you know, even if they're kind of small or subtle, it's worth checking in and saying, hey, this has been going on. Do you think it's related to my myelofibrosis? And do I need to come in and get my blood work done, examined, or, or is this something that we can triage and, and, you know, down the road? And so I think having a good channel of communication, strong communication between patient, the caregiver, and, and, and the clinician in the clinic, I think is something really important uh, managing this disease over time. And so, you know, I would say, you know, anything that is kind of out of the ordinary and unexplainable, I think is worth having a discussion about. So I think those were my uh, uh, main assigned topics. And, um, 
Dr. Mesner, I don't know if you're on the line, but we could do a little yes. bit of Q&A or a surge on as well. Yes. Yes, and actually, um, so, um, uh, Dr. Grace, thank you so much. That was really oh, no. an outstanding presentation. And I think that um, there are a few topics I just would love you to address just briefly yeah. um, in terms of um, – of the, the importance of adherence in treatment yeah. and um, communicating with the healthcare team about um, staging and progression. That would be yeah. helpful if you could address that. Yeah, so I'll start with the latter. Um, you know, I, I think speaking a common language when you're at your doctor's visit is really important. So kind of studying out what is this exactly, what is the best precise name for, and then how bad is it, you know, that staging question. And, and really making sure when you meet with your doctor, especially on that initial consult and, and after you get all the information from the bone marrow and the mutation testing and all that, kind of having a clear picture of, of where your disease lie, I think is such a critical piece of that puzzle because it determines the steps you take thereafter. Um, so, you know, I think it's worth if, if, if the doctor kind of buzzsaws through some of these things saying, wait, wait, can we, can we go over that again? I really don't understand. Um, and, and, and kind of reviewing that and making sure you, you both leave on the same page. Uh, that disconnect can be, can be, make the, the relationship very difficult. Um, there are a lot of great online resources as well that kind of help patients uh, get more information or kind of hear it in a slightly different way, so maybe it clicks a little bit better. Uh, things like the, the websites like MPNRF, the MPN Research Foundation has some good information on it, MPN Advocacy and uh, Education International, as well as the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or nccn.org, has a uh, an online guidelines for patients, which is about an 80-page document about the MPNs um, with a lot of this information in it. And so I think those can be helpful resources to augment the conversations you have with your doctor. And then the other thing is the uh, strategies to reduce uh, potential complications of myelofibrosis. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, what the first half of the question? Strategies? Oh, so was the uh, strategies to yeah. reduce um, potential complications of myelofibrosis. Yeah, so certainly, um, you know, the, the, the major complications we talk about um, are in two kind of veins. One is disease progression to accelerated or blast phase disease or acute leukemia. And really by avoiding genotoxic drugs like busulfan and some of these other chemotherapies that we used to use in the past, I think are an important part of that. Um, the other one is uh, uh, symptoms that be can, can become overwhelming for a patient. So for example, if a patient's spleen becomes very, very large, it presses on the stomach, it's difficult to eat, and patients can have weight loss and malnutrition and other challenges related to that. So I think you know, recognizing when these things are happening in, a, in an asymptomatic patient, when, so when they're transitioning from asymptomatic state into symptomatic, recognizing that, and kind of heading things off at the past before they get too bad. Because we do have treatments now available, JAK inhibitors that is, that can dramatically reverse that disease course. And so it may seem like, hey, you're just doing this for palliation, but the palliation is so good that it actually translates to a to added life or survival benefit. Oh, that's excellent. And then there's a uh, the question, um, I'm worried if that MF will transform into AML. Is mm -hmm. there anything I can do to prevent it? Yeah, un un unfortunately, to the best of our knowledge, there's nothing uh, available today that we, we know will prevent transformation into AML. And what we really, the strategy we take most often is identify patients who are high risk for that progression. So, um, you know, patients with, for example, high-risk mutations, such, such as mutations in genes such as ASXL1, U2AF1, or co large combinations of those genes. So, and, and patients with abnormal chromosomes um, in, in their 
bone marrow samples, as well as other kind of red flags in their clinical presentation that might suggest quicker transition to acute leukemia. And so we try to identify those patients before that transition happens in order to uh, uh, consider transplantation. Because really that's, that's, the, that's the one thing we know that can prevent that transition by curing the disease before it gets there. Excellent. Thank you. And there's two last ones just about yeah. the COVID vaccine. Is it yeah. effective on me? Can people get the COVID vaccine is the question. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the, it's obviously a hot topic um, and, and, and unfortunately a politically loaded topic as well. Uh, but what I would say is that to the best of our knowledge, COVID, COVID vaccines are safe uh, and effective. And we, what is certainly clear is that the complication rates with patients with MPNs is so much higher than the general population. I mentioned the Italian study. They did a second study in ET and PV, which showed high risks of, higher, higher rates of blood clots than what you would normally expect, too. So even across the MPN spectrum, um, the complication rates are higher when you get COVID-19 compared to people who do not have, have these diseases and get COVID-19. So I think, I think it's more important for MPN patients to get the vaccine and protect themselves. Now, not everyone, um, even in, in normal healthy people, will have full protection. Um, you know, these vaccines are not 100% effective. They're in the 90s percent. Um, and even some protection is better than no protection. So, so, I mean, if you're heavily immunocompromised and get it, um, you know, there, you could get some pr protection at least maybe still susceptible to getting the infection, but ideally would be less severe. And that's some of the data that we see coming out of other cancer areas right now, that patients with cancer or cancer diagnoses or getting treatments for their cancer get the vaccine. And while they may still get the COVID-19 infection, um, it, it seems to be less severe on the whole than, if, than what we see compared to patients in similar situations who do not get the vaccine. So definitely, um, I, I do believe that they are safe and effective. And um, knowing the severity of complications and the things that can happen when people contract these infections, I, I really do believe that um, patients with MPN should consider get, strongly consider getting the vaccines. Excellent. And this will be the last question. Then. Yeah. Um, my doctor said that I'm at high risk of frequent infections with the pandemic still going on. How can I protect myself? Yeah, so we often talk about the Swiss cheese model, um, where are, there are all these things that we can do. Not one of them is perfect. There are holes in each of them, but if we do enough layers, the holes will be covered by the cheese in the other layers. So, um, you know, the, the most protection comes from, you know, social distancing, washing your hands, wearing a mask, you know, avoiding crowds and those types of things, as well as things like, you know, vaccination and having the people around you be vaccinated. So I think that's another thing that's really important. Um, the folks around you, that if they are vaccinated, they are le less likely to transmit the virus to you. And I think that's a huge layer of protection. Um, and, and so, you know, if, if you have a loved one that you're coming in frequent contact with, you know, you could say, well, you don't necessarily need to do this for yourself, but, you know, please do it for me as well. Um, so, you know, we're all in this together. So I, th I think that's a really important message. Now, um, as, as, as the rates improve and we do emerge from this over time, I think you know, we, could, we can start to lessen these things. But um, I can see parts of this pandemic lasting for years, uh, the parts being in the you know, hand washing, more social distancing in all social situations, independent of the pandemic, um, as well as even perhaps masking in, in times where we know that 
respiratory viruses are circulating. So, you know, traditionally here in the Northern Hemisphere, in the winter, we have lots of respiratory viruses circulating. And so maybe patients who are more at risk for these infections uh, may mask more often in the winter than, than we have in the past. Um, and I think that might be something that we do more often going forward. Again, this is all speculation. I, I, I don't have a crystal ball for these things, but we do know that these things work and can protect people, uh, not just for COVID, uh, the COVID virus, but for all other respiratory viruses, as we've seen this past year. We've seen hardly any flu or other respiratory viruses because of all these measures we've taken, and that's without a vaccine. Oh, that's excellent. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Gertz. It's been a phenomenal presentation. I just want to thank you so much um, for your presentation and um, for also addressing some of our participants' questions as well. My um, pleasure. So thank you. Um, thank you so much. And um, uh, uh, and um, um, and now um, I would like to just say a few words now about um, the services that people can access from Cancer Care. Now, so Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and we provide free um, uh, programs and services to people um, throughout the United States. And and um, and also, if someone does have is living in another country and has a concern, if you email, if you actually go to our website and post your question, one of our oncology social work staff will address it. So we do have a staff of about 35 master's level trained oncology social workers, and they are here to provide support to you. And what does that what does that support mean? And what does it sound like? So we have a hope line. Um, it's an 800 number that you can call. Most people do call us on our hope line, and we'll ask for. For assistance. And what does that assistance look like? Well, first of all, when you call, you immediately are connected to an oncology social worker. And so whatever question or concern you may have, that social worker will certainly address that question or concern. Now, we also have um, uh, other kinds of services available as well. We, have, we offer practical and financial assistance, which I know means the world to many of you on the call because, indeed, um, you have, particularly during this past year and a half, people have had tremendous, in addition to the ordinary financial concerns and questions people have, many people have had other issues, um, issues around will they have enough food, how do they pay their rent or mortgage, how do they manage, um, all kinds of questions like that. And our staff are very well equipped to handle those questions. And, and, and we've added to our program a case management unit, and that staff actually will, if we don't have a service, we will connect you to linkages that provide those services. And Dr. Uh, Gerds mentioned uh, some of the MPN organizations. And so at the end of this program, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation. It'll actually be probably tomorrow. And that evaluation will also include, it's an evaluation, which we appreciate you're filling out, but the other part of the evaluation will include links to anything that we've mentioned during the program. So any 800 numbers, any websites we've given out, and then also other things that we think would be of help to you as well. So it'll be kind of a a snapshot of things that you can access for resources. So our case management team really has a host of different ways to help you, and indeed they will virtually take you to a place where you need that help. So they will either take you directly, um, they'll go there with you by phone um, and connect you with the services. And sometimes it's amazing people have resources right in their own locally in their community may not know that, or it could be a resource that's available in their region or nationally. Um, and so these are resources that are available to you um, um, that, to help you even further with, with help you might need. We also offer online support groups 
and people find those to be very helpful indeed, and, um, and that can be very useful to everybody, those online support groups. What's nice about them is that they aren't at a specific time of the day. So they are posting, you can post any time within a 24-hour period. So, And because each of you are in different regions of the United States, it means that you don't have to worry about will there be anybody else on the, be able to respond. It's true that our our, um, our social work staff will be responding during business hours, Eastern time, and will be moderating during those hours. But indeed, many people do post throughout the, the day and evening, whatever time zone you're in, and it's it can be very helpful. Sometimes the only time you have time to think is in the evening in your time zone, or um, so that that's a very very useful program. We also offer um, these workshops, about 75 of them per year, and we do usually do one or two of them on myelofibrosis. Um, we will be doing a um, on NPNs, and we do actually we will be doing a, a post ASCO um, uh, w w uh, program uh, workshop, and it will include NPNs, and so you'll be getting information about that as well. Um, and we also have a number of publications and publications on this topic and on related topics as well. Now, there is a topic that I did want to address with all of you, and that is um, about the telehealth and telemedicine appointments, which have become definitely more frequently used now. And uh, the issue I want to just address with you, because it comes up a lot when people call us, is um, how to prepare um, to um, how to prepare for a telehealth or telemedicine appointment. So. Um, the first thing is, of course, you want to schedule an appointment. And, and a nice thing about those appointments is you don't have to travel somewhere. And for some of you, the travel time to get to some of the institutions that you're getting care at is, is, is a lot. And sometimes it's really you need to have a conversation with your doctor. And so what we suggest is when you set up that appointment, some guidelines to keep in mind is one of, all, one of which is the technology. Um, each institution has its own technology to connect to the telemedicine, telemedicine appointment so that it's most effective and, mo and you use the time wisely. So you can work with the staff at the institution or hospital that you're at. They will walk you through so you're sure to have the technology needed for that, um, that call to be successful. That's so important, so very important. And the next thing is that you want to have a prepared list of questions, much like you might have when you're actually seeing your doctor in person, you're actually seeing them in person virtually. Um, and so do create a list of prepared questions. That's really important. And lastly, um, there is uh, something called now, uh, what we want to discuss with your doctor, open notes. So open notes are something um, that some of you may be experiencing already, is that when you see a doctor or have a test done, or a pathologist and type of testing done, the results used to be sent only to your doctor, who would then go over the test results with you. Now, if you've registered with a smartphone or any type of device, you will get the the information as quickly as your doctor gets it, but you may get it on a weekend or evening um, hours when there isn't anyone that you can process it with. And sometimes people have become very anxious about these open notes because they see things that are uh, out of range. And of course, whenever one has a health problem, there are things out of range, and that's normal for your particular, um, you know, um, myofibrosis. And so to some extent, we do ask people, um, to go over this with their doctors when you have a telehealth, telemedicine appointment and ask them what they recommend you do. Many physicians are recommending that people kind of wait until they have a discussion with their doctor before they actually look at the open notes because they will be difficult to understand for you alone. 
they do need almost somebody to go over it with you. None of you have gone to medical school, so that's kind of rather difficult to actually um, address, you know, to kind of figure out what every everything says there. And also, and, and it causes sometimes undue anxiety. So although it is a great way for you to have those records, so when your doctor goes over with them, you can look at them, nevertheless, looking at them by yourself without a medical personnel person there to, to interpret it for you, it can be rather challenging. So that's something I just want to go over with you. And the other thing I want to just review with you is the doctor-patient communication aspect, which is so very important. And it's something that um, affects each of you because your communication with your healthcare team is really important. And some of the questions that um, you had today for Dr. Gerds, there are a lot of questions like that that you each have. And indeed, um, but the, again, when you have a visit with your doctor, those prepared list of questions, and we often recommend a second set of ears and somebody else to come with you. And now with telehealth, telemedicine, you can have um, somebody or you can choose the people that you wish to have. Um, sometimes it's more than one person that you want listening in. It makes a very big difference. Um, it's very hard to take in everything that someone says. Um, and so having someone else there um, that you trust and that you want to be in that with you. And it could be someone, perhaps you have a family member living halfway across the country or in another another um, country, um, they can participate now, which was not possible before the telehealth, uh, telemedicine appointments. I think what Dr. Gerd said was so important about the fact that these telehealth, telemedicine appointments are probably going to be something that are going to go going forward, we may keep hold on to them to some extent, still have the opportunity to see your doctor in person, of course, for a physical exam and, perhaps, and to also have a, a communication with them in person. But also the advantage of telehealth, telemedicine appointments is that you can bring in other family members, other people to actually um, participate with you on the, in the call, listen, and take notes for you. Um, and uh, that can make it so much more um, helpful to you in those, those visits. And then I want to get into the quality of your life, and that's so important um, that that when you see your physician, when you either talk to them in person or on a telehealth, telemedicine appointment, you definitely want to talk with your doctor about what's important to you. You want them to know the things that are vitally important in your life. And, and so that if something important is coming up and you're in the midst of treatment, to let your doctor know to see if there's something that they can do to make it possible to you to experience that. Let's say um, that um, because things are opening up just a bit now, um, I know that sometimes people are they're having a, 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 well probably a virtual graduation, but you want to be able to go to it. You don't want to be you want to be feeling well for that, even if it's virtual or a virtual wedding, um, and so or a virtual you know graduation. You want to be sure that you can attend those things. Um, or for those of you who might still be in the workplace, to really go over with your doctor the things that you expected to do to see what's realistic and what isn't, what may require what we call um, a Family Medical Leave Act or Americans with Disabilities Act um, accommodation. Those accommodations are there for you, and it does mean that you can continue the things that are vitally important to you in terms of your income, and that's true for family members as well. If they have responsibility for taking care of you, there is the Family Medical Leave Act that allows family members in the United States to actually be able to take some leave or to have time that they need to spend with a, a loved family member who may be undergoing treatment to accompany them to an appointment when they're, it's, it's a, um, either it's a virtual or it's actually an in-person appointment. So most importantly, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone. 
in coping with um, with uh, myelofibrosis or any type of cancer. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. And I'd like you to take advantage of all the services that Cancer Care offers. And there's so many different services that we do offer um, that um, can be vitally important to you. Um, and if again, if we don't have the service, we will be sure to connect you to an organization that can provide that service. And um, it, it's just very important that you have really um, in your in your pocket almost a, a bunch of places that you can go to for support and help. Um, and and it, in in the myelofibrosis world um, and in the cancer world in general, it's, it is okay to be involved with more than one support organization um, because one organization may be able to provide one thing, another something else, another something else. And so between all of them, you're going to get what you really need in terms of support, whether it be the financial assistance, whether it be a support group, whether it be – and also our support groups are for both people – living with uh, uh, a cancer diagnosis, also for caregivers and for older caregivers, for younger caregivers, for young adults who are caregivers, for people who are young adults who have myelofibrosis, for people who are older adults with myelofibrosis, for middle-aged adults, so and for um, younger people, teens and children who are affected by myelofibrosis in the family. So that's really important to know that these services are available to all members of your family and to take advantage of those services. That's vitally important um, to do that. Um, So I just really want to thank all of you for your participation today. And I want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. And uh, Dr. Gertz had mentioned a number of MPN organizations. We will send you the links to them. They're wonderful go-to organizations in addition to your own healthcare team to get resources and help with. Um, And and now I'm just going to ask you just a few questions um, before we... um, before I wrap this up. So I just have a few questions for you. Um, And I'm going to ask you again, as you did in the beginning, to address these questions. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of the important role of staging, diagnosing, and progression in myelofibrosis in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current standard of care and new and emerging treatment approaches for myelofibrosis. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the common signs and symptoms of myelofibrosis, how to reduce complications of myelofibrosis, and what symptoms should prompt a call to my healthcare team. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. The next question is, 
As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with my healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the symptoms, side effects, discomfort, pain, and quality of life concerns of myelofibrosis. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in participating in clinical trials for myelofibrosis. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for your participation in these questions. It really will help us as we plan future myelofibrosis programs MPN programs to understand um, what your learning needs are. So thank you all for helping us with that. It really makes a tremendous difference. Um, and again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.